Hiya, Ed here with your friendly reminder to check the show notes for any content warnings related to this episode of the Unbreakable Movie Chain. Also, just in case we've fucked up massively and made any big old spoilers related to any other movies, we'll pop those in the show notes too, so you can consider yourselves fully warned. Thank you, enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Unbreakable Movie Chain, the podcast where we review and discuss a film based on a link to the previous movie. I'm Madeline Gould and I'm here with Ed. Hi, Ed. Hi, yeah. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. It feels like an age since we last did this. Uh, it absolutely does. We've um, we've been on our summer holidays. We've been uh, beavering away doing edits and socials and stuff um, and not chatting so much about movies, which has been a massive hole in my life. It has. It's been, it's been a really tragic period of, of time. <laughs> but um, uh, so we've watched so much between the two of us that we've actually had to branch out and do a special summer back to school bumper episode of everything that we've been um, watching over the summer. How many films do you reckon we've we've watched between the two of us? What? How many films in the last couple of months? Yeah, in the last couple of months. Like, because I've I've got a list that isn't exhaustive, and it's about thirty. I've got a list that isn't exhaustive, and it doesn't include films I've half watched and then given up on. Um, sure. <laughs> <laughs> which has actually been quite a few. You're, you're much better at that than I am. I, I I never I never give up on a bad movie, except for Robert Zemeckis's Pinocchio. You gave up on. It. Haven't been back. Well, <laughs> um, also, I, ah, I also gave up on the Snyder Cut of uh, of Justice League, but it wasn't my choice to start watching it, and I'd already seen the theatrical version, and it was shit. Sure, that's fine. Whose choice was it? Was this your wife? Uh, yeah, yeah. It was when it when the Snyder Cut came out. It was one of those things. Everybody was talking about it, and she was curious. She hadn't seen the theatrical cut, and I was like, "Are you sure you want to put this on?" And we got about halfway through, which was an hour and a half of our lives. <laughs> um, <laughs> and she went, oh, I think I want to get to bed now. Yeah. So, yeah, we knocked it off and never went back. And I'm not sad about that. No, I think that's entirely fine. They just made a shit film longer. Y- you know, editors do know what they're doing most of the time. <laughs> so... Yeah. Um, well, it was but... the difference because 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 the theatrical cut was Joss Whedon's version is the story because um, uh, Zack Snyder had that terrible family tragedy and had to mm. leave at the end of production and Joss Whedon came in and did a whole load of reshoots and did his own version of it and it doesn't sit together very well. Well, no, you'd think that a very famous, prominent, prolific with a very different style director would not be the best person to bring in like surely yeah. as someone who was already on the team the first ad the i don't know someone else would be better to help bring yeah. the vision of the original director to life because that's who they hired if they wanted yeah. a joss whedon justice league film they would have hired joss whedon in the first place so well i think they wanted joss whedon to come in and do that because of the job that he'd done at marvel because if you remember how heavily involved he was in that sort of first phase of the mcu and did an incredible job like sure. that 
that first phase of the MCU is really enjoyable, whatever we may or may not think about superhero movies now, Ed. <laughs> well, indeed. I think uh, well, I don't know what phase they're in now, but I think like so the f- the first phase was was pretty strong. The second phase was uh, mostly dull, and the, but the third phase was actually quite strong. Yeah, I don't know what they're doing now. I'm not really interested. Well, the horse has died, and yeah. they're fl- and they're flogging it. So <laughs> the fucking magic crystal crystal gauntlet horse. The fucking, I don't know, yeah, whatever. (laughs) Beating that horse to a bloody pulp. (laughs) Um. (laughs) Wearing its skin. Leonardo Leonardo da Vinci, who am I talking about? Leonardo DiCaprio has climbed inside the dead horse (laughs) that was the Marvel (laughs) Universe. Anyway, the films that I didn't finish are films that are like the best best films of all time films. So like... I know what one of them is. Yeah, you do, because I was texting you about it. (laughs) (laughs) I think... Actually, you possibly know what two of them are. I was having a little, are uh, Al Pacino and Robert De Niro really as good as all that? Uh, jaunt through their back catalogues and have some opinions. Maybe maybe the good listeners will have to wait for our um, summer bumper back to school episode to find out what those opinions are. What I will say is Raging Bull can fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> and Heat is so boring it's so boring and neither of them are doing anything interesting they're just sort of there so there we go those are my hot takes uh send hate mail to <laughs> yeah send it all gold's way i quite like both of those movies <laughs> sure although i've not i've not seen raging bull in a long 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 time actually i've not seen either of them in a long time i might have a different opinion if i watched them today but i think i saw them both when i was about 18 which was 20 years ago i feel like they're both films that potentially a lot of people this is going to sound so judgmental i don't mean this to sound as judgmental as it's going to come across but you know like mm-hmm. if you don't watch a right lot of films if like that's just mm-hmm. not a thing that you do and if someone mm-hmm. if if the world has said to you this is one of the greatest films of all time ever it would mm-hmm. be very easy to go oh okay then i'll then uh, this is a good film mm-hmm. um and i watched both of them and was just like okay raging bull looks gorgeous absolutely fucking stunning it but does. is it a good film but I, I i can't answer that question because i didn't watch to the end because i turned it off because i was like this is fucking loathsome i don't want to spend any time with any of these awful people and it's not even they're not even loathsome in a fun good interesting character analysis way they're just fucking awful people it's like <laughs> anyway sorry <laughs> I tell you what, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to revisit Raging Bull and uh, yeah, come I, come, <laughs> come come back to you with uh, having watched it fresh. Do you know? I I do also think it, it, you can't have a proper critical opinion of something you haven't seen or engaged with the whole of. So I fully mm. appreciate that maybe the, the half an hour of it that I watched before I was like to get this out of my fucking eyes. Um, yeah. I, I mean, uh, you, you you won't even have seen the bit where the clowns show up on the unicorn. Is that like? <laughs> <laughs> You know, really the twist, hope. obviously, the, the butler did it. He was dead all along. He wakes up in the shower and it's actually yeah. Al Pacino. I, I don't know. I just, I, <laughs> I've been sort of trying to make my way through Scorsese's back catalogue as well and like, just try and work out what I actually think of him as a director. Are you looking forward to um, his new one? Killers uh, of the Flower Moon. Killers of the Flower Moon. I'm not. No, I, not really. It won't surprise you to learn that I'm super keen. Maybe it's fucking brilliant. Maybe it's an amazing film. The films of his that I have liked, I only like them kind of a bit. And then there are some of his films where I genuinely don't understand what the fuck is all about and a lot of it i haven't seen 
And I, I think mm. that's because I've either actively disliked like the stuff I've seen. I've actively disliked it. It's only been so-so. And mm. for that reason, he isn't a director who makes me go, wow. He used yeah. to, but that's because like the world tells you this person is a genius and amazing. And actually I'm like, mm. I don't get it. I almost always enjoy a Scorsese movie when I watch one, but I don't ever just go, oh, Put on a Scorsese movie. The only one of those that I would do, I would. I, there was a period where I would gladly watch The Departed every day. That's that was the one that I was sort of going to alight on as as the one that I might just sort of put on and have on. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it's kind of. I think it's the most accessible. Yeah. The other ones require sort of investment of of time. Oh, actually, Shutter Island. Yeah. Shutter Island. I'm always up for watching Shutter Island. Yeah, I, I'd like to rewatch that. But yeah, my watching over the summer has been in some ways very focused because I've been like, right, I'm gonna do a load of Robert De Niro Scorsese pictures. I'm gonna do yeah. a load of you know. Uh, and then it's actually yeah, I've been to the pictures a lot, but I've been mm. mostly to see re-releases and. Um, special one-off showings and stuff so some really good stuff in there um what about you ed what have you been i mean obviously we'll we'll discuss more on our summer bumper i keep forgetting what we're calling it (laughs) (laughs) but yeah is there anything you wanted to chat about yeah so there's a a couple of movies that are that are still out at time of recording one of which you might have to track down uh, the other of which i think will probably stay around for another couple of weeks maybe i went to see past lives i saw it at the electric cinema in birmingham and was at absolutely blown away by it i came out and almost immediately text you saying how good it was and you were like nah i don't fancy that mate and then you text me a couple of days later having gone and what was your reaction i was like oh i'm off to see past lives and then i came out of the cinema but didn't immediately text you and you sent me a message a few hours later and you were like dear god i hope you liked past lives (laughs) (laughs) i'd sold it so hard (laughs) the stakes were so high but no my my response to it was like immediately gone on to my favourite films of the year. Five stars, brilliant knockout film. Just it's a real star. fabulous. It is, from the description of it, it is not a film that I would have been interested in at all. But because you were so emphatic about it, I thought, I've got to check this out. I'm yeah. so glad I did. Well, I said to you, I, I don't think that there is a possible synopsis of that movie no. that would do it justice, mm. that would make you go, oh, I want to go and watch that. You have to just sort of take the pump and, and, and watch it. It just, it's such a beautiful film a sort of quiet tender movie for anybody who has ever thought about the people that you've left behind or the people who've left you behind yeah it broke my heart a little bit and it put me together a little bit by the end but with that sense of that sort of sense of uh, sort of a, a wound that's that's healed that's repaired but you've got the little scar there you know what I mean it was a film that made me feel so many emotions at the same time but not in like a big rush of overwhelming overpoweredness I just was very aware of all my internal organs (laughs) (laughs) the whole way through and I was like my heart aches I'm aware of my heart aching like it it is not a film that you are in danger of coming out sobbing Do you know what I mean? It's not right up until the very last moment. I wasn't really sure how it was going to end up or what I wanted to happen. And it just was. It's fucking great. It's one that sort of lingers in the mind. And yeah, you sort of go home thinking about it and I just still think about it and and without giving too much away that that central scene of the three of them in the bar is just extraordinary bit of filmmaking it really 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 is where the one character is sort of gently sidelined just gradually sidelined it's the, the film is kind of um separated into 
three chunks that are 12 years apart it, it lets you fill the gaps in it doesn't it doesn't need loads of sort of heavy-handed exposition where it's like oh um catching you up with what's happened in the past 12 years it's Don't need it. very very <laughs> subtle it's so it's got the lightest touch the camera like a bit like we were talking about with the graduate the camera hangs back and allows them space it is one of the most masterful kind of montages of communication in the digital age i think um that that kind of middle middle section where i didn't feel like i was just looking at someone reading a text on their phone or doing a video call it felt really intimate and really the performances are fantastic aren't they aren't they just they're brilliant the music is amazing the uh romanticization of kind of arriving in a city as a stranger it's it couldn't be further actually from the kind of film i thought i would enjoy so you know something that's very meditative and and it's interesting because i watched it very shortly after watching tokyo story which is a 50s film and lots of very similar Similar themes, lots of there's lots of crossover, and tonally it isn't dissimilar. But it it, it just like Tokyo Story at the end, I just was a bit like, oh, okay, I'm glad I've seen that. That's the thing that's happened. And this film, I like ached afterwards and yeah. and carry it around. And actually, even talking about it with you now, I'm feeling all those feelings again. Yeah, me too. And um, you said that uh, you didn't know how you wanted it to end. Yeah. And I felt the same way. I didn't know how I wanted it to end until it did end. And then I went, oh, that's exactly how I wanted it to end. Yes. That, that's exactly how I wanted it to end. And I had no idea until that moment. There's quite a lot of long pauses where the two, char- two central characters are just kind of looking at each other and being in each mm. other's company. And... I'm struggling to think of an example in film that is better at conveying the depth of emotion and the tension in the air and all of the stuff that isn't being said, like crackling in the air between those two characters. Like you could smell it, you could feel it, you could hear it. It's a really potent film. Like everything, considering it's in many ways a very gentle film and very meditative, it's also it's really impactful and all everything in it feels quite intense. And I just want to make note of, of one extraordinary shot from a technical perspective. There's the one character in the kitchen, the one in the bathroom just behind, so the framed in the doorway, and the ki- character in the kitchen goes off screen uh, to get something out of the fridge and you see him in the mirror on the other side of the open doorway so the two characters remain in shot the whole time just from a sort of technical perspective keeping everything in motion bit of blocking is absolutely beautiful my jaw hit the floor it's it's gorgeous it really really is thank you ed for recommending it and making me go you're very welcome um there is uh, one other film that i wanted to make a very very quick note of that also blew me away little small british indie film called scrapper yeah it's the debut feature from charlotte regan who i learned was born in the 90s which made me feel physically ill (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but she's made this really beautiful charming funny 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 film uh, that's actually about dealing with grief and reconnecting with people uh, that you should have been connected with this whole time really it's yeah a young girl who has lost her mother, reconnecting with her father who ran out on them to go over to Spain when he was, yeah, when, when she was a baby. And it's it's really beautiful. From from talking about it like that and saying what it's about, you 
have no idea just how playful and joyful uh, a movie it is. It is full of imagination and wit. These fabulous, this fabulous central performance from this young girl um, who I believe uh, <laughs> off camera was just as bolshy as she is on camera. Um <laughs> <laughs> It's got just the right amount of grip, not so much that it is ever depressing. There are times that it moved me almost to tears, but it would then come back and make me laugh in the next scene. Check it out as soon as you can. And uh, on that note, I guess we should probably chat about what we came here to chat about well yeah the (laughs) film that we're going to talk about has actually had is having continues to have into the autumn a cinematic re-release to celebrate its 30th birthday which is a um, frightening (laughs) thing to know (laughs) it is although i I can only find it in 3d at cinemas interesting but there might be some 2d screenings as well which would be preferable for me certainly there is also a tour of it of the screening of the film with a live orchestra which i think would be really really scrummy because the soundtrack is obviously absolutely fantastic it's one of my favorite film scores it's just gorgeous i didn't mean for us to dance around it i just sort of assumed that everyone <laughs> knew what we would be talking about ed what are we discussing this week oh we are discussing 1993's jurassic park <laughs> um <laughs> clever girl <laughs> shooter <laughs> Yeah, this is a film that I know inside out. As you know, I like to watch these things twice. I didn't really even need to watch it once. I've got very few notes because I just I know this film yeah. so, so well. I don't know what your story with Jurassic Park is, but for me, it holds a very special place in my heart because it was the first live action film I ever saw at the cinema. Oh, man. And I think it was the first film that I ever saw at the cinema that I stayed awake the whole way through. I believe I had been to see two Disney films previously, um, The Little Mermaid and Peter Pan, and I slept through both of them. My history with Jurassic Park, I was too little to go and see it at the cinema, but I did watch it on video. I remember going to the video shop near my house and choosing it and taking it and being so scared that I had to like get as close up to the TV as possible and I've loved it ever since. <laughs> so, um... The Blair Housekeeping? Yes, please. Excellent. So, uh, Jurassic Park, 1993. It premiered June the 9th, 1993 at the Uptown Theatre in Washington, D.C. That was for a charity event for a couple of children's charities, was that initial premiere. And then it was in previews the next day across the States and opened across the States the following day before gradually over the next uh, few months being rolled out to the rest of the world. Directed by Steven Spielberg, but this was his 13th full-length feature as a director. It slots in in between Hook in 1991 and Schindler's List which also came out in 1993 so yeah that's absolutely crackers you know when you think about like oh yeah no what have you got on this year at work oh well no I've got two films coming out one of them is Jurassic Park and the other one is Schindler's List (laughs) yeah which uh, Schindler's List won Steven Spielberg the first of his uh, or the first two of his three Oscars. Yeah, so he won that one Best Picture and he won Best Director for it. So he's got two Oscars off Schindler's List. Do you know what the other Best Director Oscar was that he won? Best Director? Spielberg. Is it Saving Private Ryan? Did he direct it Saving Private Ryan? Saving Private Ryan, <laughs> yes. <laughs> well done. Phew! Well done. <laughs> I suddenly just had that moment of like, oh God, oh no. That isn't Steven Spielberg, is it? <laughs> It is. You're fine. It is. Okay, good. Yeah, good. <laughs> yeah, so big year for Spielberg, 1993 was. I don't want to go into too much depth on Spielberg now because there's so much else to talk about with Jurassic Park and we'll get a chance to chat Spielberg another day, I'm sure. It's adapted from the novel by Michael Crichton, who had 
success with the screenplay for Westworld back in 1973. I love um, Westworld. <laughs> I bring Westworld up particularly because it's essentially the same story as Jurassic Park in many ways. <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> you know, amusement park where the attractions go wrong and kill the guests. Uh, uh, yeah, the same the same bit of business, really. Although, um, who is who is Yul Brynner? In Jurassic Park. Uh, Yul Brynner is the the main velociraptor, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Yul Brynner is a clever girl. (laughs) Um, Michael Crichton was about to have quite a big 90s in in terms of the cinema because he wrote the novels of Disclosure and Congo, uh, both of which had some success as films did you see disclosure mm-hmm. when you were doing your 90s erotic no. thriller phase no i didn't it, it's on it's still on my list um he was about to launch er in 1994 uh, the year after this which obviously er was a huge success as a tv show gave us george clooney well indeed and he also did the screenplay for twister i love twister yeah you and jem can watch that together i can't be bothered with twister can you not <laughs> it's nah. so it's so funny it's so daft it's just great I love that it's a film about science people in which the bad guys are the scientists who've got funding basically (laughs) it's like evil evil funded scientists they're so evil One of the things that's going to come up yeah, during this bit of housekeeping is all of these people all work together all of the time on the same films, um, either with Spielberg or uh, Robert Zemeckis. So loads of these people will find worked on like the Back to the Future movies, for example. Uh, so yeah, the other writer uh, on the film is David Cope, who at that point had written uh, the screenplays for Toy Soldiers, Bad Influence and Death Becomes Her. Also coming out in 93 was Carlito's Way, which was quite the success as well. Uh, he was going to have a reasonably big 90s as well because he did the screenplay for uh, Mission Impossible in 96. Then went on to do the screenplay for Lost World, Stir of Echoes, uh, Fincher's Panic Room, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man uh, and the two most recent Indiana Jones movies. Uh, so Kingdom huh. of Crystal Skulls and The Dial of Destiny. Yeah, thanks for that. I've not seen <laughs> Dial of Destiny. I watched um, I watched the Honest trailer for it and that was enough for me. So uh, producer on this, Kathleen Kennedy. Now I'm going to talk about Kathleen Kennedy a little bit because she is as important a figure in Hollywood as Steven Spielberg. Yeah, she co-founded Amblin with Spielberg and her uh, subsequent husband, Frank Marshall, in uh, around 1980. Um, so she'd been assistant to the writer John Milius on Spielberg's film 1941, which was in... Uh, 1979 that came out then she was associate to Spielberg on Raiders of the Lost Ark in 1981 and then her first production credit was on Poltergeist uh, as associate producer and then her first full producer credit is on E.T. Ah. She then went on to do Gremlins, uh, Goonies, the Back to the Future trilogy, uh, Roger Rabbit, The Land Before Time, Twister, Sixth Sense, Signs, Benjamin Button. Uh, She's now the president of Lucasfilm so all of the Star Wars content since Force Awakens, she is a producer on, and she is an absolute colossus of cinema. A very important figure. The other producer on the film is Gerald R. Molan, who had worked with Spielberg on Hook, uh, Schindler's List. He then went on to work with Spielberg again on Lost World and Minority Report. Music. <laughs> another another person we will meet time and time and time again. Another constant collaborator with Spielberg, uh, John Williams. Um, so he has composed all of Spielberg's movies except for four. So he's done the score for all but four. Can you name the four? Oh my my God. Am I allowed to look at a list of Spielberg's films? Uh, you are. You are. Crikey. So I'll help you out a little bit. Until quite recently, there was only one that he hadn't scored. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> so hard. 
that? Well, presumably he didn't do the music for the recent West Side Story. That is correct. That was Mr. Leonard Bernstein. Ah, are, are we including upcoming? No. Now I'm going to assume he didn't do his first one, Sugarland Express. Yeah, sorry, I wasn't, I wasn't including that. Sorry, his first since their first collaboration, which was Jaws. Okay. Um, I'm going to say he didn't do Ready Player One. That is one of the ones he didn't score. Is it? Because uh-huh. that I that just doesn't feel like a John Williams-y kind of a movie. And I don't know what the other one is. So uh, so you've, you've got two still to get. Oh, shit. Sorry. Yeah. I can give you them, though. Um, so he didn't score The Colour Purple and he didn't uh... score Bridge of Spies. So that's uh, Colour Purple, Bridge of Spies... Ready Player One and West Side Story are not John Williams' scores. That is very interesting. And he won't be um, scoring the upcoming um, Colour Purple that Spielberg's doing that's coming out later this year because that's a musical. Oh, yes, I have heard about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I forgot about that. I don't know if it's the musical that's based on the stage musical or if it's a new musical. But um, I don't know. The stage musical is extremely good. I, I'm not familiar with it at all. I've not seen. I've not seen uh, Spielberg's original movie of it. It's it's the problem. The color purple. It is extremely good. It's so upsetting. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so upsetting. It's like, and you know, obviously there's joy. There is joy in it. There's beautiful joy. There's wonderful love and joy. Yeah, it's just so, it's too fucking sad. I can't. Yeah. With it. <laughs> this, this is what Spielberg does really well because it, it, his films are all about love and joy. They're full of it. But when he breaks your heart, my goodness, he breaks your heart. It, it, they can be so sad. Anyway, uh, so yeah, a little bit about a little bit about John Williams. In just in the run up to that first collaboration with Spielberg on Jaws in '75, um, he'd been composing for film and TV since 1958. His first composing credit is on a an episode of Playhouse 90 from 1958. I don't know really what that is, but in in the run up to doing Jaws, he had a little line in uh, those sort of 70s disaster movies, of which I kind of include Jaws a little bit, not really, yeah, but yeah. a little bit. Um, he'd done. The score for the Poseidon Adventure in seventy two and Towering Inferno in nineteen seventy four. Towering Inferno is great. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> I, I don't care for the Poseidon Adventure, but Towering Inferno is great fun. No, no, no. I, yeah. I particularly don't care for the remake of the Poseidon Adventure with Kurt Russell. Have you seen I it? I haven't seen it. Is it Roland Emmerich, the director? I think so. And it, um, it's proper pants. <laughs> it's got um, Fergie in it <laughs> of oh, Black God. Eyed Peas fame. Of Black Eyed Peas. Okay. <laughs> um, obviously, um, John Williams, hugely prolific figure. Other scores not related to Spielberg that you would recognise: uh, Harry Potter, Star Wars, Superman. Yeah, those are all John Williams scores, and they're all a part of the the zeitgeist, I guess. Anyway, moving on, we've got the director of photography was Dean Cundey, um, who also has a brief cameo in the movie uh, with Steven Spielberg. He was the OP on Hook in 1991. He also worked with uh, Robert Zemeckis on Back to the Future, well, the whole trilogy, Back to the Future, uh, Death Becomes Her, Apollo 13. He also was John Carpenter's go-to guy. Uh, so he was the DOP on Halloween, The Fog, Escape from New York, The Thing, and Big Trouble in Little China. The editor, Michael Kahn. Uh, Kahn! Um, <laughs> Kahn! <laughs> he has been Steven Spielberg's editor on everything since Close Encounters, just repeatedly. Works with Spielberg. Uh, I guess they have a great rapport. Uh, also the editor on Fatal Attraction, 
Alive and a series of unfortunate events, amongst many other credits. Uh, production designer Rick Carter, again, worked with Robert Zemeckis a lot uh, on Back to the Futures 2 and 3, not on the first one, don't know why. Um, he was PD on uh, Death Becomes Her, Forrest Gump, Castaway, What Lies Beneath and Polar Express. All for Robert Zemeckis. For Spielberg, yeah, he uh, production designer on uh, Lost World, Amistad, AI, uh, War of the Worlds, Munich and Warhorse, uh, Lincoln, the BFG, The Post uh, and The Fablemans. Also, just randomly, was production designer on James Cameron's Avatar. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. Um, art director, John Bell. Yeah, his uh, only art directing credits are... Uh, Jurassic Park and the animation Rango. He's mostly a concept artist, having done uh, concept arts and storyboards for things like Spawn and Starship Troopers, uh, also Ooh. The Revenant. Um, and for Steven Spielberg, again, he worked on AI and The Lost World. Uh, the other art director on the job is Jim Teagarden. Um, that's William James Teagarden. Uh, again, mostly worked with Robert Zemeckis uh, throughout his career on Back to the Future uh, that's all three of them uh, Death Becomes Her and Forrest Gump and Castaway and then again with Spiel- Spielberg on The Lost World and AI also randomly on Independence Day oh <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> set decorator Jackie Carr who'd worked on E.T. again Death Becomes Her also uh, on Species um, which I'm sure you've seen Species oh yeah uh, and uh, David David Finch's The Game and Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion so then um all that's left to talk about there really is uh, the effects. Digital effects um, provided by Industrial Light and Magic, which is uh, George Lucas's company that he founded to create the effects for the first Star Wars movie and has just since then pioneered uh, special effects. Uh, I would say it's probably the most important visual effects studio of the last 50 years. They have constantly broken ground again and again and again. And the practical effects uh, were created in the Stan Winston studio. So... Stan Winston, one of the great makeup artists, created the yeah. effects for the Terminator, Terminator 2, Aliens, Avatar, Edward Scissorhands, John Carpenter's The Thing, all mm. sorts of stuff. And his studio created the animatronic dinosaurs for this. So that huge T-Rex, the Triceratops. Anytime you see the animatronics, I guess the uh, the little Velociraptor being hatched out of the egg. Yeah. Any of those animatronics, that's all come out of the Stan Winston studio. We will meet him again I'm sure. Uh, It was made for a budget of $63 million uh, and it took at the box office a frankly staggering $1.057 billion with a B. (laughs) It was nominated for three Oscars and won all three of them. That was for Best Sound, Best Sound Effects Editing and Best Visual Effects. And just to run very quickly through the cast list, we've got Sam Neill, who stars as Alan Grant, uh, Laura Dern as Dr. Ellie Sattler, Jeff Goldblum as Dr. Ian Malcolm, Richard Attenborough as John Hammond, Joseph Mazzello as Tim, Ariana Richards as Lex, Bob Peck is Muldoon the Gamekeeper, uh, Martin Ferrero is Gennaro the Bloodsucking Lawyer, <laughs> B.D. Wong is Dr. Wu, Samuel L. Jackson uh, is Mr. Arnold, and Wayne Knight as that bastard Dennis Nedry. Dodson! We got Dodson here! <laughs> I love that. That's, yeah, it's, it's one of my favourite moments. <laughs> when I went to see Dominion, the most recent Jurassic Park oh, yeah. um, film at the cinema with Richard, but did you see it? No, I don't go to see the new Jurassic Park films because, frankly, I, I saw Jurassic World and I saw whatever the one after Jurassic World was. And mm-hmm. that was when I said, no, I'm not, I'm not watching these not anymore. Not doing it anymore. 
no, no, no. There have been fine. so many sequels yeah. to Jurassic Park, and not one of them would I choose to watch again. Not one of them do I sit and watch and not think, oh, I could be watching Jurassic Park right now. It's true. Um, Lost World was quite close to my heart when I was younger. I can see um, that. And, you know, I really enjoy a lot about that. I hadn't seen Jurassic Park 3 for quite a long time. Me and Richard went through a phase of um, our New Year's Eve tradition was to get a takeaway and watch a trilogy. So um, we did Indiana Jones one year, Star Wars, all of these. And then we did Jurassic Park. And I'd never seen uh, Jurassic Park 3. And I will never get over the uh, moment when he has the dream on the plane and the velociraptor goes, Alan. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Alan. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's not uh, not necessarily the uh, most sensitive handling of uh, PTSD on screen. (laughs) No. <laughs> but um no um the big bad in uh, jurassic world dominion is dodgson oh is that right <laughs> hilarious played by the same actor and they don't make a thing of it in the film at all the only reason i know that is because i was looking at the cast list on imdb and saw that the character name was dodgson and clicked on him and was like oh no it is it's the same guy it's who dodgson. played dodgson in the first one but it's not it's not like a part of the plot at no point are they like, oh my God, you're the guy who, who wanted to steal the embryos in the first film. It's like, no no one knows who he is. It's kind of, it just is him. It's so weird. It's really, I don't know whether maybe there was, it's a, it's a hangover from a previous draft of the script where it was going to be a thing or? Possibly. I don't know. I quite like, I quite like it if they didn't make a big deal of it. Because, you know, it's, think times have moved on and this is a character that exists in the world and what I don't like is and what one of the things that put me off actually was I, I hate fan service yeah, yeah I hate yeah. fans oh well, get them all together look they're back together aren't you all happy now you'll come and watch this won't you I don't give a shit the Dodgson thing felt like fan service that they were gonna do properly and then forgot to follow through mm-hmm. on yeah. And it was just sort of left over as like a weird little nugget. And sure. and I think um, if the rest of the film hadn't been so heavy handed with its fan service, yeah. I would think like that's quite a nice touch. But I it felt like it had been forgotten about um, because <laughs> the rest of the film is so heavy handed with its sure. fan service um, for a film that is about locusts, not dinosaurs. It's what? like, oh, yeah, no, it's not about dinosaurs. It's about giant locusts. Oh, <laughs> Your, your little face. Oh. <laughs> why, yeah. Why, why would they do that? Why would they make that movie? I don't know. It doesn't make <laughs> any sense at all. <laughs> it is very, very bad. It's sure. a very bad film. But instead of talking about that film, let's talk about, let's talk about uh, a good the one film. that started it all. I've been thinking quite a lot about how we're going to talk about this because it could quite easily just descend into nonsensical gushing. Yeah, and I don't want it to just be like, and then, and then, and then, and then. So I was having a little look at reviews from the time and um, a couple of articles that have been written quite recently. Um, one of them was, uh, it said, sorry, millennials, Jurassic Park isn't as good as you think it is accusing the love for the film mm-hmm. being disproportionate because of nostalgia sure and a lot of the criticism against the film is to do with the it's like do you know what undoubtedly the effects are incredible but everything else is shit there are no characters there's no plot it's very paint by numbers etc 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 now okay i don't agree with these things i fundamentally disagree <laughs> yeah. yeah right so i i think it's a perfect film <laughs> 
Yeah, I think I think I think it's brilliant. I think it is the apex of the summer blockbuster. So together, let's unpit <laughs> these accusations. Yes, let's and and discuss why this film is so good. Because I fundamentally believe that this film it isn't just nostalgia. I believe that this film is a fantastic film in every way. Where where, where, where do you want to start? I know where I'd like to start. <laughs> tell me, t- just you. You tell me. You tell All right, me. So this accusation that it doesn't have a plot. <laughs> what the what? I mean, I know. Okay, you've obviously got the overarching narrative of people stuck on an island in danger running away from dinosaurs. Um, but within that, you have these beautiful narrative arcs. Um, the most sort of obvious and sort of clearly defined and clearly drawn one, I would say, is Alan Grant's of sort of coming round to the idea of having family and letting children into his life. Um, We go from that first scene where he does that wonderful speech with the uh, with the velociraptor claw and terrifies the shit out of that young lad. It sort of stayed with me as a kid watching that. Yeah, so starting from that point and then going through just quite beautifully through meeting these uh, two young kids, John Hammond's grandchildren, um, him getting sort of forced to spend a bit of time with him um, first by uh, his partner, Dr. Sattler, um, Ellie. Um, and then when events take a turn for the worse, actually making the decision to go and protect them, where the Gennaro, the bloodsucking lawyer, runs out and, and has my all-time favourite <laughs> movie death. <laughs> um, when you gotta go, you gotta yeah. go. No, Alan Grant, as much as he professes to hate kids, he doesn't doesn't wait. He doesn't pause before going and, and keeping them safe. And then bonding with them on that journey through Jurassic Park to the point where you get that last shot on the helicopter of him with them in his arms. It, that is just one beautiful, beautiful narrative arc within this very well-plotted movie. So we can chuck that accusation out as far as I'm concerned. What do you think? Oh, I completely agree. And and that brings us on beautifully into the idea that, the, that there aren't any proper characters because actually, I mean, I, I consider the kind of central relationship of the film to be Alan and um, Ellie. Um, Interesting. I kind of do. I think, you know, that um, central niggle in the centre of their relationship. Yeah. At the beginning, it's like, there is a decision to be made about their future. Is there a future for them? Because she wants mm-hmm. kids and he doesn't want kids. And it's like, well, and also all of this, this isn't, it's not like that we meet them in the middle of an argument. It's very subtle. It's, it's they're having a chat as they walk up a hill. It's very lightly handled, this kind of, yeah. which is quite a big, a big thing. And then by the end of the film, she's looking at him with these kids in her in his arms and there's a future for them suddenly I, I don't know there's there's so much going on there's so much layered in there that I don't understand how people could think that there's no plot because also within the plot you've got this for want of a better phrase like corporate espionage I mean I, I, you know, there is an entire subplot here which is about a um a contractor rising up against his unfair treatment by his boss yeah you know he he just wants to be paid fairly yeah that's all he wants that's all he wants you've got a, a john hammond's sort of narrative arc that sort of fall from from a place of 
sort of childlike optimism and wonder mm. to the reality of what he's created a sort of uh, yeah a sort of a Victor Frankenstein kind of arc absolutely a Victor Frankenstein arc and actually I think that John Hammond is a really interesting villain You're, he's dis- he disarms you because he's this twinkly eyed mm. dressed all in white sort yeah. of grandfatherly figure and by this point you know he's Father Christmas he's that kind of actor right yeah. well he did he did play Father Christmas didn't he Richard Attenborough he did I think after after this. this, I think, yeah. Yeah, I think this was his first screen role since the 70s. Is that right? He'd, t- he'd taken quite a big break. and um, Well, he was directing quite a lot, wasn't he, in the 80s? He did yeah, Gandhi of course. Like um, so I think it was it was um, like a return of this sort of lovely um, kind of grandfatherly figure mm. who's evil. He is <laughs> evil. What he's doing is morally bankrupt. My favourite scene, actually, I mean, this film for me, there's the stuff that I got as a kid, which is all the good big action and fun stuff mm-hmm. and then there's the, there's actually the very for a family film the quite adult scenes one of my favourite scenes is the scene where they're having lunch after they've fed the raptors mm-hmm. and it's the scene where that incredible speech that Jeff Goldblum gives he's like banging his fist on the table saying and before you even knew what you had you've packaged it and put it on a plastic lunch box and now you're selling it that wonderful scene I love that whole scene which is where they all gang up on him and have actually a very succinct clear discussion of the conflict at the centre of the film the moral conflict about it and it's like it's fucking great. It's genius. Yeah, and Hammond says, by way of defending himself, he he says, "I brought you people here to defend me from these characters, and the only one on my side is the blood sucking lawyer." That should be a <laughs> moment for him that he goes, "Oh God, the only one on my side is the blood sucking lawyer." <laughs> Maybe take a moment here. It proves to you that John Hammond has no interest in the expertise of these people. He's interested in their credentials in order to throw his weight around. He just wants the 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 weight that they carry as experts to back up the thing he already believes and wants. He isn't in any way open to... You know, he's got his kids... He's he's brought his grandkids here to try to test run it, but he's already made all the merchandise. He's already paid for everything. Everything is complete. They've got an entire buffet out yeah. ready for them. What's he going to change? He keeps saying sped no expense um, again and again and again, but he has only sped no expense on things like merchandise and that sort of stuff because we know that he's cut corners in terms of paying his staff. You know what I mean? And presumably in terms of various security mechanisms, clearly corners have been cut. So he, he expects to get a hard time off uh, off Malcolm, doesn't he? And he expects to get a hard time off Gennaro because the sort of health and safety liability aspect. Also, isn't because Gennaro is the one who's actually brought Ian Malcolm because um, in, in the helicopter, Hammond says, I bring scientists, you bring a rock star. Oh, yeah, that's right. He does. To Gennaro. He, yeah. So actually he's kind of, Hammond, in order to appease the investors, he has kind of cherry picked the people who he mistakenly believes are going to reinforce his view um whereas Gennaro as the lawyer who is representing the investors he's brought Ian Malcolm Hammond kind of anticipates that he's going to get a hard time from him and then in the end he does but it's actually the lawyer who's like yeah no this is great (laughs) and that should give him pause but it doesn't and that's why he's a wonderful villain (laughs) but he goes on a sort of redemption arc doesn't he because he his grandchildren get put in direct danger because of the choices that he's made and the consequences of his actions are sort of brought home to him, um, particularly in that lovely scene between him and, and Laura Dern, between him and Dr. Sattler, where he tells her about the the flea circus that he created as his first ever attraction and 
um, how this time it's all going to be different. And she just draws a line under it. She says, no, it's still the flea circus. It's all an illusion. Have, have you read the novel? No, I was going to ask you if you had actually. Yeah, so I, re- I read it a couple of years ago. And the version of John Hammond in the book is much more sort of overtly self-serving and a villain. Uh, whereas I think in what Richard Attenborough brings to the part, I believe that he thinks he's giving a great thing to the world and that it's going to be fabulous. All the stuff that he says about how it's going to be delightful for children and all that, I I think he absolutely believes it. Yes, there is there's a lot of ego and yes, he's self-serving, but also he's mostly naive and sort of childlike. He's a bit, he's a bit of an Elon Musk, isn't he? <laughs> sort of, oh, and I can... I can do this and that'll be great. And that oh, but things are going wrong. Oh, but I can do this and that'll be fantastic. Oh, but everything's going wrong still. Oh, but it's okay because I'm in charge. And Well, it's like what um, Ian Malcolm says to him in that lunch scene where he's like, you've built on what other people have done, but you, do, you, don't, you didn't have the discipline to gain the knowledge for yourself. And it's kind of, it's all very surface level. It's about the, the pomp and circumstance and not about the actual like real world implications of any of this stuff. It is, it's still the flea circus, exactly like Laura Dern says. What do you think of the, um, the casting in this film? It could be because of the age I was when I first saw it, but to me, those actors just are and forever will be those characters. Like, it's it's difficult for me to see Sam Neill in something else, or Laura Dern, or, uh, or even Jeff Goldblum. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because that sort of central unit of characters, those three, re- I, I just think it's really interesting casting for big family-friendly summer blockbuster, where, you know, the equivalent now of those sorts of characters like in the Jurassic Park franchise it's you know your Chris Dubry which one of the Chris's uh, is Alan, it? Alan Grant today would play by Hemsworth yeah exactly whereas when you think about the careers of those three actors leading up to Jurassic Park Jeff Goldblum had been in like The Fly Laura Dern is a David Lynch regular Sam Neill had done really weird like European art house cinema yeah. where the hell did they come <laughs> from <laughs> and I now can't like if I see anything that um, Sam Neill made before he made Jurassic Park. I'm like, who the hell is this weirdo? But he's so trustworthy and charismatic and he's perfect for that part. And I just think it's really brave. Would you like to hear some excerpts from the lowest lowest reviews oh, on IMDb? Just... Yes, go on. Um, this is the only one star. This is one out of ten stars on IMDb. And how in the hell did this abomination of a movie get a better rating than Titanic on this site? <laughs> the reason for my strange praise for Titanic is because at least Titanic had a story at the foreground and special effects were used to support the story. The opposite is happening in this movie, where the special effects take the front seat and, in fact, is the only purpose of this movie. Everything in this movie is horrible, <laughs> except for the special effects. <laughs> what do you think about that? I, <laughs> I just can't. I don't understand what movie did these these people watch. Ed? I don't know. What, what, movie did, what movie did this person think they wanted to watch? What, what did they think they were going to watch? So this one, two out of ten. Poor acting, casting, writing, direction. The plot, in inverted commas, is very, very silly. Even when I was a kid, I would have thought this was very childish. The dialogue was awful and Jeff Goldblum was especially dreadful. I'm just going to say, there are some fundamentally joyless people in the world. <laughs> um... <laughs> 
the consistent thread through all of these reviews. I mean, I read, I've read hundreds of these two-star reviews. I love reading user reviews. It's one of my favourite things. Some people just don't know what they're buying. I mean, basically all of them say the special effects are good, but everything else is shit. Like the special effect, the only point of the film is the special effects because there's no plot, no character, no. Compare it to what has come subsequently. Compare it to those Transformers movies or so much of the Marvel output. Yeah. You know, the recent Star Wars movies. You know what? There's at least as much plot in Jurassic Park, uh, Park as there is in any of those. I'm sorry, there just is. There is heart. Okay, do you know what? You could make an argument that, yeah, okay, it's quite simple plot in terms of like, group of characters run away from danger. Yeah. That's what, like that's what you want in a in a blockbuster in a in a popcorn yeah, movie you don't want fucking zodiac no <laughs> <laughs> because that's not what that's not the job of this yeah. film and maybe there are some clichés but show me any film that isn't building on something that has gone before it this film has got some cliches in it, but it's also got such heart and soul. I think with, with with Jurassic Park, there is obviously the whole matter of taste. I totally get it if you don't like Jurassic Park. If it's not your cup of tea, that's absolutely fine. However, if you're going to try and claim the things that these people are saying um, on IMDb reviews, I mean, it's hilarious. If you fancy a giggle, look at the reviews in ascending order. <laughs> The one thing that all of the reviews seem to have in common is they like the special effects. To this day, 30 years later, still look incredible. I was telling you just earlier before we started recording that I watched uh, War for the Planet of the Apes while we were away. And the effects look amazing, but they still look like effects. And that film is about five years old now. Like the CGI looks a little bit shonkier than it would today. When you look at the CGI effects in Jurassic Park 30 years ago, yeah. It's shonky, but it looks great still. Like, you know that it's, you know that you're looking at CGI dinosaurs and you've got that disconnect where you, like, you know that they're not really there, but you still get that today. And this is a film 30 years ago that still holds up. And I, I think, I think that's partly to do with how judicious Spielberg is in his use of CGI and practical effects. So I think there's something like, there's only about 60 shots in the film that feature CGI. There's a couple of quite major CGI set pieces. One of them being when there's Grant and the kids are standing in the middle of that field and that kind of herd come flocking <laughs> towards them. Oh yeah. But they've got weight to them. They're heavy. The last time I'd seen Jurassic Park was on a big screen at a screening in Peak Cavern in Derbyshire. Mm -hmm. So it was it was event cinema and we went and um, sat in the cave and watched Jurassic Park on the big screen and it was joyful. So I'd seen it quite big um, and then for the pause i watched the 4k restoration of it and even then big screen and big restoration the effects hold up and, and like you say the kind of pioneering special effects that what they developed in order to make it hadn't been done before over the summer i watched the lord of the rings trilogy mm -hmm. with my nephew who's nine and i was thinking about Gollum and like the pioneering special effects that they made for that film and the effects haven't held up the practical effects are absolutely fantastic then to go back to jurassic park and look at the special 
special effects in that. They're unbelievable. There's such an over-reliance on CGI effects nowadays. As I say, sort of he uses it so sparingly in Jurassic Park for moments that really matter. So yeah, the scene with the, the, the Gallimimus yes, flocking this way. Yes, thank you. But it's okay because, because Tim has trouble remembering too. He's like, Gala, Gala, Gallimimus. Uh, yeah, there's that scene. There's the stuff with the Velociraptors and the T-Rex at the end. And there's that first time you see the dinosaur in full, which is a moment that I, I do want to talk about a little bit because it, it gives me chills. It gives me chills when I watch it because you your focus is on the car. You've got Laura Dern, Ellie Sattler there, looking at a leaf, just being like, this shouldn't be here, this is weird. And you've got Grant sitting next to her who spots these dinosaurs and you see it sort of through his eyes and he sort of grabs her head and makes her look at the dinosaur <laughs> and then it sweeps up and we see these magnificent creatures and yes yeah, so you get this incredible build up from, from, from the actors reactions and again perfect acting one of my favourite things about that scene as well is it's like a little trickery moment they take their sunglasses off yes to see them better yes it doesn't make any practical sense but it, building the tension you needed an extra step in that moment of realisation mm. of him seeing the dinosaurs and it's like so he sees them he stands up he takes his sunglasses off and we see the surprise yeah. in his eyes like that three step reveal it's clever filmmaking it's clever acting it's a clever choice yeah. well there's so much you see in his eyes there's surprise there's wonder there's a little bit of horror it's all it's all there or we are able to read it all there it's so much easier to unpick why you don't like something than it is to unpick why you do like something well because when you do like a thing it's so just tied up with sort of an emotion that a thing gives you like I had it a bit when we were talking about past lives a minute ago I, I, it's difficult to sort of really talk about why the thing works for you whereas when when I see a film that I'm not enjoying my mind immediately is like okay why isn't this working and it sort of tries to pick apart exactly what isn't working and fix the problem and fix the problem yeah because fundamentally as a viewer mm -hmm. you're on the side of the thing whatever it is that you're watching or consuming you want it to be good so that you enjoy it because you want to have a good time yeah you haven't started watching it to have a bad time and if you're deliberately watching something that you think is going to be shit you're doing that to access a positive emotion mm -hmm. you're doing that because you want to laugh at yeah. the thing even if that's a bit mean spirited that's what you want to be doing right yeah I'm a big fan of The Room oh god yeah, I love it. And, um, you know, there's plenty of films that I stick on because they're a bit shit and I enjoy watching a shit film. Like, actually, in a way, The Virgin Suicides, I found it much easier to talk about The Virgin Suicides because it had potential, but there were things that were wrong with it. Yeah. Whereas Jurassic Park, I'm finding really difficult to talk about because all I want to do is go... And, and this was great. And then this was great. You know, gushing. Yeah. I don't know how to love something critically. I only know how to gush. <laughs> do you want to chat about some of the characters? Some of the, some of the lesser characters, perhaps? Do you mean Muldoon and how sure. I want him to be my husband? Let's start with Muldoon, <laughs> uh, played played by the great Bob Peck. It's just a genius thing to have like a big game hunter. Mm -hmm. If you if you look at all the different characters as kind of colours that you've got on your palette that you can use to make something else, whatever colour it is that Muldoon is, <laughs> I love that. I want that on as like a feature wall sure. <laughs> in my house. <laughs> Whereas some of the other characters, I'm like, yeah, I really like those, but there's just something that appeals to me about Muldoon. He's so savvy. He's so on top of his shit. And you get the feeling that he feels that if he wasn't there doing his job, the whole thing would fall apart even worse than it does. And he also knows from the very beginning the Velociraptors are going to escape. Yeah. Like he is the only person who's got an eye on the Velociraptors. Yeah. Well, that that line when when he first meets Grant and Sattler, he, he sort of first shows up, he just goes, they should all be destroyed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, yeah, is great sort of foreshadowing for us. It is the, the film telling us, 
yeah, this is where the problem's going to be. These are the guys. <laughs> you think it's going to be the T-Rex. Yeah. And Dr. Grant thinks it's going to be the T-Rex because in that in that um, that first scene where he sees the dinosaurs for the first time and um, he's like, how fast do they run? And Hammond is like, oh, we've clocked the T-Rex at whatever. And he's like, say it again. All eyes are on the T-Rex. All uh, The eyes of the viewer, the expectations of the viewer are on the yeah. T-Rex. Oh, yeah. And one of the genius part, one of the best things about the film is that it manages to make the T-Rex like the biggest, one of the biggest threats, but ultimately it is in a kind of heroic position. Yeah. It's like a champion and the Velociraptors are the baddies. Like they're the evil ones. Like, that's so clever. It's, it's genius. You, I mean, yeah, you've got that big famous set piece with the T-Rex in the middle of the film, the very sort of heart of the film where everything goes wrong. Notably, the character that, that the T-Rex kills is the blood-sucking lawyer. Yeah. And in, yeah. in what is an absolutely hilarious death, it, it is yeah. intentionally comical. It's so funny. So even in that moment, in the moment of the T-Rex's greatest villainy, it's doing something that makes us laugh, almost makes us cheer. Yeah, oh, he's grabbed that shitty lawyer off the toilet that's amazing <laughs> he's sort of a hero from 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 the outset and then obviously makes the big save at the end it's genius because you're right all eyes are on the t-rex we take for granted what a clever reversal of our expectations that is i can't imagine the version of me that didn't know this film inside out like <laughs> i can't imagine how that would be but presumably when yeah. you watched it for the first time mm-hmm. with no context around it and without a franchise and without knowing anything about it you would think that the t-rex would be the the kind of the big bad and, and it is the big bad but in a kind of like lumbering way whereas the velociraptors they are characters they have got personalities and muldoon knows that each of them has got a distinctive personality well, he, he says that the the leader killed the others <laughs> and he's like the big one and um, she's clever when you look at her you can see that she's working things out and back to the special effects what the Phenomenal creature design are those raptors. I mean, the T-Rex is incredible, but the Velociraptors, they smile. They've got sinister smiles. Yeah. It's so clever. And that thing, the way that they um, tap their talons on the floor, like Morse code communicating to each other, you know, it's it's just unbelievable. Do you know what my, my favourite practical effect in the movie is there? Go on. I love that Triceratops. It's so alive. It's so wonderful. Because it's the first time that we really really properly get up close and the way he um dr grant says um it was always my favorite when i was a kid and now that i've seen her it's the most she's the most beautiful thing i've ever seen and i've like yeah i think the triceratops was my favorite tapping into the kind of childhood glee and awe and wonder of of the whole thing yeah it's beautiful and in that moment you you see the wonder that john hammond wants to give to the world this is the thing that he wants kids and everybody really to enjoy you know for a price but it's interesting that you say that as well because actually it proves a total disconnect with the wonder and awe that Hammond wants to inspire and the actual practicality of Mm -hmm. it because he wants to inspire wonder and awe what has he got his tourists doing sitting in a techno gadget car oh yeah on a track so the cars can't even deviate from the track mm-hmm. and driving past a tiny little section of fence when actually the dinosaurs are off on the rest of the island you know mm. yeah it's shit it's actually a shit thing that he's built yeah. also crucially at this moment with the triceratops the triceratops is very very gravely ill and that's because they don't know what they're doing they've put the wrong plants in the enclosure they've put these toxic plants in because they thought they looked good or whatever and the triceratops is 
eaten them and got really sick. There is a carelessness that sort of undercuts this wonder that he, he wants to give the world. Which I, Hammond is so careless from the very beginning. He makes that first entrance in their helicopter. And I, I, I wrote in my notes here, I wrote, Hammond's entrance is utterly careless, just as his approach to science is, makes them an offer that he can't refuse. This is the sort of thing that Elon Musk would do now. <laughs> Who else should we talk about? Do you want to talk about Nedry? Oh, yeah, let's chat about Dennis Nedry. He's <laughs> just, yeah. <laughs> I think Wayne Knight's fabulous in this. I think he really is. <laughs> I love that scene with Dodgson when he's got the, the thing with a squirty cream and he pulls a thing out and it makes the noise and he's he's just sort of kicking his feet and stamping around with like a little child. He's so, so gleeful. Yeah, the, the way he sort of chatters onto himself as he's trying to get away and there are some logic issues with the whole of that subplot. But if we start trying to unpick logic in Jurassic Park, we're going to get really tangled up. Yeah. I'm just intrigued as to why, like, he's seems surprised that the dinosaur is dangerous and I'm a little bit like but you work on a dinosaur island the Dilophosaurus it scares the shit out of me when it's got a full rough up it's so so horrifying um no I, Dennis Nedry fantastic character and he's just got such a great death <laughs> what I like actually is that most of these peripheral characters Spielberg gives almost all of them a couple of moments where they've got the camera and they have a chance to, to shine Muldoon get, gets these great moments where all of the focus is on him and he's really memorable in those moments particularly you know the clever girl that whole stalking of the Velociraptor uh, towards the end when he dies uh, Gennaro gets great moments as well <laughs> he's such a prick I also love the logic of if it's heavy, it's expensive. Yes. And um, and, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll have a coupon day or something. And um, Samuel L. Jackson as well as uh, Mr. Arnold. He's one of the people who I sort of forgot that Samuel L. Jackson was in this. And it's a really great performance from him. It's lovely to see him in this kind of um, slightly uptight kind of office worker guy. It was sort of before he became Samuel L. Jackson, really, isn't it? What do we think of uh, Ian Malcolm's relationship with Ellie Sattler? I think he doesn't know how to speak to women without <laughs> it being flirtatious. I can't, I think that Dr. Malcolm is actually kind of um, socially inept. He's kind of charming, but he's. I think that he manages to get across a kind of um, extraordinary science brain <laughs> that possibly impacts on the way he's able to communicate with people. And I think he's probably like a bit, he's a bit shit with people. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a really interesting insight. I was... <clears throat> Uh, yeah, I was mostly fascinated to to know what you thought. Um, I know it was uh, it was Goldblum's idea apparently that that he should be really into Sattler and really coming on to her. He doesn't at all pick up on uh, that that she and Grant are together <laughs> until until they have that conversation, that really awkward conversation <laughs> after he's been flirting with her in the car with like, drops of water on her hand and you know the imp- imperfections in the skin and all that sort of chat. I suspect that Doctor Malcolm doesn't know. How to communicate with a woman without trying to have sex with her. <laughs> yes. yes. And it's interesting because in The Lost World, the second film where Dr. Malcolm is the kind of main character, mm. he has undergone a complete character makeover. Sure. He is unrecognisable. Doesn't he have a daughter or something in that film? Yes, he does. He has a daughter. And Julianne Moore is his girlfriend. That's right. There's all this sort of um, posturing and fluff and ego and charisma and weirdness and rock star quality. But actually, 
I love the moments when Dr. Malcolm is doing his job, be it being the um, chaostician. 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 Something like that, yeah. The, the, the maths guy. Chaos theory the maths, maths guy. Yeah. People who are experts in things do this before, where you kind of chat onto them, and then when they drop into their area of expertise, they slightly change. There's a sort of gravitas, isn't there, when they drop there into is, the area of expertise. There is, but there's also a kind of like a shyness. It's a really interesting indication of how he's sort of got this outward-facing persona that he puts on. Anything else to say about him, Malcolm? I love it when he's got his shirt open and he's lying on the thing. Of course you do. <laughs> of course I do. It's so weird. It is, it is weird. <laughs> he's just like, it's like he's trying to seduce Hammond. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think he was fully clothed when she was there. And then as soon as it was just him and Hammond, he like ripped his shirt open. I want to believe that that's what happened. <laughs> it's like, I'm on my own in a room with a human. I need to try and have sex with the human. Uh, you, so, you, so, you think, so you think it was a, it's a sexual thing between him and Hammond rather than a sort of assertion of of uh, male dominance i think with ian malcolm it's always a sexual thing sure <laughs> <laughs> um what do you think about dr sattler uh laura dern lovely laura oh, dern, I love her. who actually is um if we haven't mentioned it already she is the reason we watched jurassic park because it was her performance in little women um which we talked about last time um is what brought us on to jurassic park she's fantastic this was the the first Laura Dern film I ever saw. I think for a lot of people it probably was. Yeah. I imagine for quite a lot of people it's the only Laura Dern film that they've seen. And she goes through such a gamut of emotions. I don't really have much to say about her other than I think she's really great and does fantastic lopsided running towards the end. I love the lopsided running so much. And I love her um, exhausted, hysterical, terrified crying. Mm. There's a few bits, like the kids particularly, obviously they have to do a few bits where they're scared or something and Lex just straight up does a big scream. And that's great. But I feel like it's very very naturalistic, Mm. actually. A lot of the responses to the the fear and the danger and the adrenaline and stuff feels very natural. Um, Do you know, um, Lex's scream is what got her the job oh is it um yes apparently spielberg was looking through all the audition tapes of these young girls doing whatever and screaming and when it got to her tape spielberg's wife ran into the room thinking there was something wrong with the kids really and he was like okay found her (laughs) i love that that's great do you want to say anything about alan grant um i love him there you go. Lovely. Um, something that I like. This isn't about just Jurassic Park, the film. It's kind of about that initial trilogy. Something that I really appreciate is that, it, it, and again, it's very subtle. Mm-hmm. This question over wanting children. Mm. I love that that is a sort of source of tension between the two yeah. of them. And I like that the end of the film leaves you with that kind of, oh, maybe there's a future for them. But actually, over the course of the that initial trilogy, we find out that no, they don't get together, and. She she gets married and has a family because he doesn't want children. And that's something that actually does ultimately drive a wedge between them. And I find that whole subplot so interesting. And I love how little we find out about it. Yeah, I, 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 just another reason I don't need the sequels. <laughs> yeah, no, because you, you said that for, this, for you, the central relationship is the one between Grant and Sattler. Um, whereas for me, the central relationship in the movie, as far as I'm concerned, is between Grant and the kids. I think I think that's what Spielberg's most interested in. I completely agree with you. I, when I say it's the central relationship, I mean it more that that's the that's the relationship that interests me the most. But I think that the central relationship, as far as the the film is concerned, I mean Spielberg is very interested in family. 
that's one of his main focuses in all of his films. There is a big focus on family. And I really enjoy, I like that 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 question over family is one that he hangs over Grant and Sattler and their relationship uh, without labouring it, but you can see that it is something that he is preoccupied with. And obviously, because it's a Spielberg film, that all ends up with all oh, the question of the potential future family unit being left open to be able to come together. That's probably the slightly more positive ending. Yeah. Any other business? Anything else you want to talk about? The music? Oh, the music. How could I forget the music? It's... Um... <laughs> Well, I, I, yeah, what, what can I say? It's my favourite John Williams score. Beats the piss out of Star Wars. <laughs> it does beat the piss out of Star Wars. I also love the music in Hook. Oh, interesting. Yeah, okay. As much as Jurassic Park? When Jurassic Park comes on Classic FM, <laughs> I really enjoy listening to it. If Hook comes on, I turn the radio, I turn it up. Oh, wow. <laughs> but maybe that's because I just haven't listened to it as much. You know, I've... I've seen Hook so many times and I can't hear the score in my head at all. It's cool. Do you want to play the John Williams game? No. Yeah, it's the whole score. I love it. I think that's the that's the difference because Hook, the kind of flight to Neverland suite is probably my favourite individual piece by John Williams. But in terms of the whole score, absolutely Jurassic Park. It's the it's the it's the little piano bit that I love most that is so sort of so sad and uplifting at the same time. And the the death of John Hammond's dream is in there, but there's also a sort of sense of adventure and wonder in there. There is a melancholy in it, but there's also a kind of quiet wonder and awe and a nostalgia and a connection. Yeah, okay, maybe as millennials, we are nostalgic about Jurassic oh, we Park. We certainly are. But Jurassic Park is nostalgic and it is nostalgic for the kind of wonder and awe that you felt as a child. And that is contained in that music as well. Okay, has your opinion changed on the movie at all? No, 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 I still love it. It's absolutely still in my favourite, favourite films of all time. We'll never turn down an opportunity to watch it. (laughs) If it's on the TV, I will watch it. If it's not on the TV, I'll put it on the TV. If If there's a screening of it in a cinema, I'm delighted by it. And occasionally I do stick on one of the other two from that original trilogy uh, particularly the raptor going alan <laughs> <I> just... <laughs> it's so funny what about you has your opinion changed in any way uh, um sort of having looked at it in a little more detail than i ever have before has made it grow a little in my estimation and um, just as a sort of just a piece of filmmaking and storytelling essentially it just it makes me feel good yeah i love it for that it doesn't matter how many times i re-watch this film i still feel all the feelings as potently as I did before. That T-Rex attack is still one of the most terrifying things I've ever seen on the screen. It is absolutely proper, like, don't forget to breathe. Exciting. The wonder and the awe at the dinosaurs. I, I always almost cry when we see the Triceratops. And I absolutely love the kind of spooky uh, Ellie Sattler going through the dark, like, walkways in that bunker with the light um i love that fabulous gory jump scare of the arm coming down onto her shoulder through the pipes there's an edit of that that they show on the tv in the middle of the afternoon where they they cut uh, mr arnold's arm so mr arnold just sort of disappears never heard from again and the character is not sort of tied up in any way whatsoever i'm just like if you can't show the film 
don't show the film. TV schedulers, <laughs> show it at an appropriate it. time. I think my main sort of takeaway about Jurassic Park is that the filmmaking and the performances and all of that stuff is of such a high quality and it's so technically good that you don't notice it happening. And that, for me, is an indication of it's actually more technically impressive like you totally get sucked in and believe that what you're seeing is happening however outlandish the scenario and on that note are we done we should we play the game <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> all right so um any first time listeners uh, the game has three stages first stage uh, gould is gonna say what she would have chosen to be our next film uh, the second stage of the game is she's gonna say what she thinks i might have chosen to be our next film and the third stage of the film, uh, stage of the game, is me revealing what it says. It's really, there's, there's two parts to the game and then the reveal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, <laughs> that magic, magic rule of three. And, of course, as always, the film that I've picked will be based on some connection to the film we've just watched. So I would have chosen... Now, am I watching Jurassic Park this time? Um, I got a bit of a taste for the gore. I was re- like um, watching um, Mr. Arnold's arm come down through those pipes all gnawed. I was like, I want to see some gore. We were texting earlier. Um, you'd said to me this morning, I'm still not sure what I'm going to choose. <laughs> and I said, well, I know what I think you should choose. And you were like, okay, well, yeah, I'll, I'll just choose that then, assuming <laughs> I've got it right. What do you think I want you to choose? Oh, um, well, purely because I know you love Jeff Goldblum and... Um, yeah. I know you love a bit of gore, horror, nastiness. I think you want me to choose the fly. Yeah, I do want <laughs> you to choose the fly. But I also want you to choose Event Horizon. Oh, sure. Um, for the blood and gore and guts. I love Event Horizon and Sam Neill is so good in it. But there's actually quite... I mean, if you wanted to jump across into horror, you could follow Sam Neill quite a few different ways. I wondered if you might do... Again, following actors, I think, is where I'm going to stick. I think that you might have followed um, Wayne Knight and we might maybe watch uh, Basic Instinct. Oh, interesting. Okay. Okay, no, apparently <laughs> not. Or maybe um, follow Sam Neill and watch The Hunt for Red October. But then I was like, oh, family film. <sighs> do you know, I actually don't know what you would have chosen. I would be following my gore, gore stinked. <laughs> to um I'd, I'd choose event horizon i think that we would have a lot of fun discussing event horizon um but ed no um will you tell me what you have well, chosen? I, i've not chosen event horizon i'm afraid i'm ever so sorry i've also not chosen the fly and i i have sort of finalized my choice over the course of the conversation yeah so there, there were a few options that i had i mean uh, sort of spoiled for choice really one of the things that i considered doing was uh Obviously, I, I referred to Jurassic Park as the sort of the apex of the summer blockbuster, which is a form that Spielberg is credited with having created. So I was, for a while, quite interested in going back, looking at Jaws as the, the very first summer blockbuster. One of my other options, I thought about uh, following Richard Attenborough all the way back to a not quite so lovable grandfatherly figure uh, and, and watching um, Brighton Rock to see him as the gangster uh, against uh, Pinky, yeah. Um, I've not chosen that either. There's too there many, are options, too many options because you I could, could go, go on forever. Uh, all of these people are so prolific. Where, where my heart was for a long time uh, was I wanted to go for a million years BC, Raquel Welch in her fur bikini. Uh, and then I was thinking, oh, even further back for some sort of 
monstrous uh, special effects and stuff. King Kong, that was what was in my head this morning. This very morning was King Kong, but no. It didn't even occur to me that you might do another dinosaur movie. <laughs> I'm not doing another dinosaur movie. <laughs> I was so con- I was so kind of tied up with thinking about what I would choose. I didn't stop. I was so preoccupied with whether or not I could. <laughs> I didn't stop to think about whether or not you would. Sure. <laughs> you should. I should. <laughs> um, but this this was this was my chain of thought um, this morning. Was I thought? Oh, look at another monster movie, which Jurassic Park essentially is is a monster movie. Um, look at King Kong was what I was thinking then, and I was like, no, let's look at a different kind of monster movie. All this summer, uh, well, there have been two big hits this year um, at the cinema. There was Barbie and there was Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer with the subtitle An American Prometheus. John Hammond is a sort of Prometheus figure, a modern Prometheus, if you will. Does the phrase modern Prometheus mean anything to you? I know you're a literary person. (gasps) Are we watching Frankenstein? (gasps) Yes! We are watching 1931's Frankenstein. Oh, Ed, what a wonderful Directed choice. Directed by James Whale, starring, of course, Boris Karloff as the monster. I'm so delighted. <laughs> That's a wonderful um, choice. It's available to rent at the usual places. So YouTube, Amazon, uh, Apple Movies, Google Play. It's also available to stream on uh, Classics On Demand, which I think is something you can only watch if you're prepared to watch movies on a laptop or an iPad. But I believe that's a free service. I could be wrong about that. Um, but yeah, Frankenstein is available to watch in places. Have you seen it before? I have seen Excellent. it before. You you could probably have a worse night than doing a double bill of Frankenstein and Bride of, oh, Bride of God, Frankenstein. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, which is Absolutely. also fab. Lovely. And so all that remains to say is thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Unbreakable Movie Chain. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. Also, check us out on the social medias. We're uh, active on Instagram and TikTok particularly. You can also contact us at moviechain@outlook.com. We'd love to know what you would have picked. Also, any of your thoughts about Jurassic Park are welcome. And with that, thank you very much for listening. Love you lots. And bye. 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 All right.